If you don't know me, for those who are visitors, my name's Ian, I'm the uh, assistant minister here. And uh, I'm training to become a minister at the moment, which is, which is great, a great privilege. I've got about three years left, so uh, it's still, still in the making. We're in the middle of a, a sermon series at the moment um, in the book of Philemon, well, the letter of Philemon. It's a tiny letter, which is why we can read the whole thing today. And it's next to another tiny letter, Titus, if you don't know where it is. And it's before it comes to a bigger letter, Hebrews. So that's where it is if you want to follow it along with us today. The, the title I've got today is Open Hearts. And uh, it's written by a prisoner. So it's written by Paul, who was under house arrest uh, in Rome. Um, oh, there we go. It was, it was written by Paul, he was under house arrest in Rome, he was waiting trial, and he was probably in his sort of 60s, maybe early 70s by this time. He regards himself as an old man. I'm not saying you're old if you're in your 60s or 70s, Paul said it. Um, and he's written to a slave owner, uh, a guy called Philemon, who was a Christian, a really well-respected Christian in the city of Colossae, where Paul had been and Paul had established churches in Colossae, and uh, it's written to him. And it's written about a guy called Onesimus, who was Philemon's slave, or one of Philemon's slaves. And Onesimus had fled to Rome. We don't know why. We don't know whether he fled, he'd stolen anything on his way. But he'd left uh, the keeping of Philemon, and he'd gone to Rome, which is actually, I looked it up this week, it's over 12,000 miles, sorry, 1,200 miles away, which is a long way, isn't it? I don't know how he got there, but it must have taken him a while. And amazingly, he was transformed while he was in Rome. He didn't expect it. Grace and Kevin mentioned today some of the things they didn't expect God to do, a seven-band jump in a, a job application. Uh, who would have thought it? And I wonder if Onesimus would have thought what was going to happen in his life. He was transformed. He became a Christian. And uh, at some point, he met Paul in Rome. Again, coincidence, not. Uh, he met Paul in Rome, and he ended up being the kind of aid to Paul while Paul was restricted under this house arrest. And Paul was just valued him so much. In the letter, it tells us a lot about his relationship with Onesimus. And so Paul writes this letter to Philemon, and he, he, he realizes he can't keep hold of this slave. It would be wrong for him to keep the property of another person. And so he writes this letter to Philemon, but instead what he's doing is he's encouraging Philemon to take Onesimus back in a different manner to the manner in which he left. For him to recognize that Onesimus had changed, and to encourage him to take him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. So that's the kind of bit of background. And Mags, you're going to come and read uh, for us the, the letter. So it's Philemon, uh, all of the letter. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of God's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, 
an old man now and a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you from my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thanks, Max. We live in a, a time, don't we, of hyper-individualism, where it's so much is catered towards what we want, what we believe, our freedoms, our choices. And you think that that would bring us real freedom and more joy, but actually, all the surveys suggest that actually we're less happy, the freer countries are less happy, the more individualistic societies are less happy, and more isolated than we've ever been before. There's more ways of connecting than we've ever been before, we've ever had before, but we're more isolated, we're more lonely. It's that fascinating connection, isn't it? And um, we have less intimate relationships than ever before. We've got more stuff, but we're less content. We've got more freedoms, but we seem to be more enslaved by unhealthy habits, habits and disordered desires. And uh, we have lots of transactional relationships. And what do I mean by that? I mean, transactional relationships are relationships that are empty of love. That's my definition of it. It's not in the, uh, the uh, Oxford English Dictionary. It's my, my interpretation of that. A relationship that has no intimacy. There's distance between the two people. And we have loads of these sorts of relationships, don't we? You know, we, we have them with delivery drivers. We pay for something for goods, and now we own the goods. That's a transaction. We pay for it, or we pay for a service, and then we expect the other person to provide a service for us, a delivery driver or a checkout person or the postman. Kevin mentioned being a postman. That's a transactional relationship. It's a relationship without intimacy or a child minder our receptionist at the, uh, the doctors, etc. It's easy in, in transactional relationships to treat people dismissively, isn't it? To kind of not really care whether they like you or not, to not really be as kind and as generous with them as you'd, you would be with somebody you really knew well. And uh, 
it's, uh, it's a real temptation for us. The distance between us and the lack of intimacy encourages that sort of transactional relationship. After all, most of these people were paying them, or they're being paid to do a job. I don't need to be nice to them. They don't owe me anything, and I'll probably never see them again anyway. You know, the, the Sainsbury's delivery driver that came to me this week, and he was a real character. He was like, yes, lad, how are you doing, mate? And he was like, I didn't think I'd see him again, but I saw him before Christmas, and he was a real character. He came back, and actually, we had a really good chat, chat about music and what he's up to at the weekend. But it would be really tempting to just think, look, I'm tired. It's freezing. The door's open. I don't really need a, a long chat with a delivery driver. Now, Philemon and Onesimus... Uh, their relationship was a very much transactional relationship, wasn't it? Slavery, perhaps the worst form of transactional relationship. Philemon owned Onesimus. Now, we don't know how, how good that relationship was. We don't know whether he tra- treated him well or not so well. We presume from the letter that Paul's writing that Philemon is a really kind, generous guy. So we can, can probably assume that he treated slaves better than the non-Christian slave owners. But at the end of the day, he was still his slave. He was still his property. He could treat him however he liked. And as Neil said last week, a slave that had fled and come back would have been expected to be punished for it. In Roman, Greco-Roman society, you would have expected a slave owner as a deterrent of other slaves leaving to treat them uh, with punishment, really. And so Paul is pleading with Philemon not to do that. The gospel has transformed the way Paul has seen other people. The gospel should transform the way we look at other people. Look at the person. Why don't you look at the person next to you just for a moment? You don't have to gaze lovingly into their eyes, but just have a little look at their face. You realize now you're looking, you're glimpsing the face of God. That might seem heretical or overstated for some of you, but when we look into the face of another human being, we are looking into people that God has made in his image. We are a reflection However dimly we do that sometimes, we are a reflection of God's image. You just looked into the face, however dimly, of God himself. Imagine what that would do if we meditated on that every day. If we thought, every person I see today, I look in their face, I'm looking into the face of God. How might you treat people differently if you were thinking like that all the time? How might you treat the receptionist in the doctor's surgery? How might you treat your boss at work if you thought, I'm looking into the face of God? as I see my boss at work who doesn't seem to be very helpful or is putting extra pressure on me, etc. You could go on, couldn't you? And Paul and Onesimus, it was no transactional relationship. Paul speaks such love, in such loving language of this guy who is a slave. And he don't, not, just, he not only just met him, really. He said in verse 10, he's my son. In verse 12, he says, he's my very heart. And then in verse 16, a dear brother. Paul's language showed that him and Onesimus had, had not just, he wasn't just serving Paul like he'd served Philemon. They'd developed a bond. They'd become friends. In fact, to the point where Paul didn't want to send him back. He wanted to keep him. And, uh, but he knew he couldn't. He had to send him back because he didn't belong to him. And also he knew that there was a relationship breakdown. There was something that needed to be sorted out. Two people in God's kingdom that were broken and their relationship was fractured. And next week, uh, Julian's going to talk about how we do that, how we be reconciled, how we do have forgiveness for one another when relationships break down. But it would have been easy for Paul just to say, right, thanks a lot, Onesimus. You've done a great job. You've been a good friend. Go back, go back to Colossae, 1,200 miles away. I'll probably never see you again. Um, that's the end. But Paul didn't. Paul decided 
to use his influence to create a, a different future or to give a different future a chance for Onesimus. He wanted him to be nurtured. He wanted him to be brought into a community where he would be loved. And he was willing to pay a cost. So Paul paid the cost of losing Onesimus. He could have kept on to, on to him. And actually, I imagine Onesimus probably would have rather stayed, wouldn't he? I'm sure he would have rather stayed with Paul, who loved him, than to go back to Philemon, where he didn't know whether he was going to be punished or not. He could have stayed. He's 1,200 miles away. Who's going to come and get him? But instead, Paul pays a cost for him. Financially, he pays the cost. He says, I'm willing to, to give anything. That If he's stolen anything, if he's taken anything, if he's cost you anything, I'm willing to give it. But reputationally as well, Paul uses his influence as the uh, church planter and church leader to, to create a new future for this guy. Why did he use up a favor on a slave he'd only just met? Well, we don't know, but what I thought when I was reflecting on this is that Paul, you look through his letters, how much he, he cared about people, but how much he'd meditated on the love of God. The meditation of the love of God is what transforms our hearts, isn't it, and transforms our relationships. And himself, he, he knew he'd have, a, he'd have a second chance, hadn't he? On the road to Damascus, he was this persecuting guy, horrible man to, to Christians, and Jesus meets him and changes his life. He'd been given a second chance. He knew people could change. And he'd seen it in Onesimus, and he thought, I want, I want Onesimus to be given a second chance. And bringing it out wider of the gospel, he knew Jesus himself had been rejected, hadn't he? Jesus died a cruel, lonely, isolated death. The place of the skull is where Jesus was taken out on his own. Everybody had deserted him by a few of the women and one, one or two disciples. He was rejected and left to die alone so that you and I could be welcomed into the family of God. A global family bound together by love and self-sacrifice. Jesus denied himself and his own preferences that we might experience fullness of life. The gospel transforms our relationships and the way we see in others. The more we meditate on the love of God, the more we will overflow with love for other people. And I think the truth is true, the, the vice versa, in, in, in the converse of that. If we meditate, if we spend time with one another and we genuinely look into each other's faces as if we're looking at the face of God and treat one another as if he would treat Jesus himself, we actually grow in our love for God as well. It's, a two, it's like two sides of the same coin. The more, the more we meditate on God, the more we love people. The more we love people, the more we'll come to know the love of God. It's amazing how that works. And that's been my experience over the years. In this passage, there is a really well-known Greek word that is littered across the New Testament, koinonia. You'll have probably heard it before if you've heard any sermons on, particularly on the book of Acts. It's the word that is translated in this passage twice, in verse 6 as partnership, and in verse 17 as partner. But it's much richer than just a partnership, because that can sound a bit cold, can't it? It means things such as sharing common life, sharing common faith, as in holding things in common. Do you remember in the early chapters of the book of Acts, when it talked about the new Christians, what did they do? They held, held all things in common, i.e. they didn't just believe the same things, but they were like, what's mine is yours. What's yours is mine. We share. Nobody was in need. They met every day. They wanted to meet every day. Imagine that, wanted to meet Christians every day. Like, I don't know about you, but I don't usually want to meet everybody every day. I want at least a day on my own a week where I can just chill out and have a bit of my time on my, on my own. But they met every day, and they made sure nobody was in need. That was the, this is the word that was used in that passage. Fellowship, it gets translated as fellowship elsewhere in the New Testament. Contribution, community, communion even. Communion, fellowship, community. Generosity, 
and intimacy. That's what koinonia means. And Paul um, wants this relationship to be much more than a transactional, cold relationship. It's the opposite of the transactional relationships that we have. It's a commitment to communion with one another. It's an association of action. It's a community of contribution. It's where we care and share together and share our lives in practical ways. And as Neil said the other week, this is our vision and values statement we came up, a few year, come up with a few years ago. We believe it is true of us increasingly, but we also know that it's never finished, is it? This is an aspirational as well, aspiration as well. But the first clause in that vision and values statement says this, we are a growing community. Now, it's brilliant that we're growing in numbers. And last week, we had like 13 new people we'd never seen before. It was amazing. Such an incredible blessing. And even this morning, to look out, I can see some people I don't know and I've not introduced myself to yet. Fantastic. Brilliant to have you here. But much more than growing in numbers, we want to grow in our intimacy with one another and our community with one another and with God, don't we? That's so much more important than numbers. Growing in uh, generosity, growing in sharing our lives, forming a family out of a group of individuals. But how do we do that? We probably would also, that's a good idea. How do we do it? Well, there's at least four ways I've, I thought of. First of it, it's about commitment. We choose to commit. We don't walk away when things get tough. Church is never, it's very rarely easy. Relationships, all the problems come from relationships, don't they? It's very rarely technical things that actually cause the biggest stress. It's relationships. It's not always easy. But because we're committed, that's where relationships can thrive. If we don't know whether we're going to stay or go because somebody's going to react badly or somebody's going to rub someone off the, back the wrong way or get angry with somebody or hold a grudge, it's always going to be precarious because we're never secure. But in committed relationships, you know you can argue and disagree well because you know you're going to commit to one another. And that's what we do as church. We choose to commit to one another. Secondly, we open our hearts. What does that mean about being vulnerable with one another? You know, there's no point just saying, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks, yeah. That's the end of it. Great. Well, we've not learned anything about one another, and it's probably not actually true. We, when we get to know one another, we start to share our, thought, our thoughts, our flaws, our failures, the things we're struggling with, and the joys and, and things that we share uh, that are good. We share our time together. We share laughter, and we share the gifts we have. We might share meals together. We share life together. So choose to commit and choose to share Open your hearts to other people. Three, we pray for one another. And as Neil said last week, praying for one another can seem like a bit of a cop-out. Yeah, I'll pray for you. We don't mean it like that, because prayer is actually an incredible gift we can give. One of the best things we can do for one another is to pray for one another. In the pastoral groups that we have, sometimes you know you text somebody a message and they don't respond to you, and it can be like, oh no, what, well, what difference can I make if nobody responds? But actually, what you can all do, even whether somebody responds or not, is pray. Paul did that uh, for this, he prayed for Philemon, he prayed for the, all of his congregations. In fact, the New Testament is littered with Paul's prayers. And it's, I mean, we might do a sermon series on that at some point. Paul prayed earnestly for the Christians. So we choose to commit, we open our hearts, we pray for one another. And then fourthly, what Paul did for Onesimus was he sought the best for somebody else. Paul didn't have to do any, anything for Onesimus. He'd, he'd done, he, his relationship essentially was pretty much over probably. But instead, he wanted the best for another person, and he was willing to pay a cost for the, for the other person to thrive. He went out of his way so that somebody else could flourish. He, he was willing to sacrifice, and we need to be willing to sacrifice our preferences, our rights. We know in our society today, it's all about, what's my right to do this? Well, 
Sometimes you just give up your rights because that's what people do who love each other. You don't have to always get your own way. That's something I'm still learning. Our opinions and our time that others might thrive. I don't know if you've come across uh, this phrase before, love God, hate the church. Anybody come across that before? No? Anyone? Just, yeah, a few people have. Uh, and about 10, 15 years ago, it was quite popular with essentially folks that were trying, that had been hurt by being in community. They'd been hurt by church, church people. They'd particularly people that had been hurt by church leaders. And another term that is sort of used quite a lot at the moment is spiritual abuse, i.e. that where leaders have abused their position of power and influence and have, and have undermined and hurt people within their congregations. And so people have sort of gone, well, I love, I love God, but I just can't stand the church. And I can understand that. I can understand people have been hurt by other Christians. The difficulty is, if you hate the church, you're hating yourself. Because we are the church. We're part of, we are part of the body of Christ together. And it's really an oxymoron, isn't it? It's a contradiction in terms. You can't love God and hate, the Christ, hate Christians. It just, it just doesn't work. And in fact, the, the Apostle John will write in 1 John, if anyone claims I'm living in the light but hates a Christian brother or sister, that person's still living in darkness. You're actually fooling yourself if you think that you love God and you hate other people. You can't. To the extent you love other people shows the extent to which you love God. You can't have this, in, this individualistic relationship with God and love of God. I love God, I really do, but I'm horrible to other people. Well, you don't love God then. You've not grasped the love of God. If it's not affecting the way you speak and think about other people and treat other people, you haven't grasped the love of God. And this, again, another thing in our sort of generation is that we talk about love being, you know, particularly if you watch films or soap operas, as unfortunately we do in our house, and EastEnders seems to keep coming on, even though I try to avoid it. My wife likes it. Most depressing, one of the most depressive things on TV. Happy Valley, actually, that's probably more depressing. Although, again, I found myself strangely drawn to it, even though it's the most depressing thing ever. Um, but they talk about things like, oh, I don't love that person anymore. You know, I used to love them. We fell out of love. It's just not there anymore. Well, unfortunately, that's not, that's not the definition of love in the New Testament. Love is not a feeling at all. Love is not an emotion at all. It might come with emotions and feelings, but it doesn't have to. Love, in the words of a Christian rap band from the, the uh, 1990s, DC Talk, love is a verb. Well, they did love with an L-U-V because they were really cool. Um, love is a verb. It's a doing word. It's an action. It's a choice you make. It's about commitment. That's what love is. It's not a feeling at all. In fact, the best advice my mother-in-law gave me before we got married, she hasn't given me any good advice since. Um, she said, there's going to be times that you hate one another. I was like, never. We won't hate one another. We, we write love letters to one another. Sad, isn't it? We wrote love letters to one another at college, like all the time. I think she's still got hers. I think I burnt mine. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry, best face then. <gasps> that we couldn't imagine a time when we would ever like fall out, let alone hate. Now we argue all the time. Um, but she was like, you will hate one another. You will hate each other's guts. And there'll be times when you go, I really wish that we weren't together. And I wish I'd be just better on my own. Those are the times when you choose to love the other person. And, and that has actually been one of the best bits of advice I'd ever give somebody who's thinking of getting married. If you, love, if you fall out of love, if you don't feel anything, that's normal. That is a normal marriage. That's a normal relationship. And you have to commit to one another. And in fact, 1 John goes on to say this. 
This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but love with actions and in truth. Love without action isn't love. Love without commitment isn't love. Love without a cost just isn't love. If you use the word love and it's not got any of those uh, attributes, you're using the wrong word. It's not about feelings at all. It's about, about action. And it's easy as well, obviously, particularly when we find people difficult or we hurt one another, which will happen. And I'm sure you, if you've been in church any number of years, you know that we do, we do hurt one another at times. We do. That's just the reality of living in community. But we choose to love one another. And that is the hallmark of a Christian community. That's koinonia, love in action. We're coming towards a close now. Oops, didn't realize that didn't happen. Coming towards a close. In my life, I've experienced so much koinonia, so much love in action from other people. People have paid costs for me in so many different ways. You know, when I was in the early days as a Christian, I was a hot-headed young man. Uh, before I was a Christian, always getting into fights, always trying to... In fact, I was telling Maura the other day, there was a story, I, I'd, I'd remembered this, I'd forgotten it, and it came back to me, that there was a time when all of my friends stopped talking to me because I used to boss them all around. So, a bit like Grace and Kevin. Um, <laughs> sorry, Grace, I'm only kidding. Cheap shot, that, wasn't it? But they, they literally, one day, they all, they all turned their bikes and turned the other way when I came out to play, and they wouldn't speak to me. And it took me weeks to try and find out why. And one of them caved and said, it's because you just boss us about. You're a bully. You boss us about all the time. And when I became a Christian, um, obviously you don't change overnight. And so I'm like, wow, Jesus, right. And I'm going to tell everybody. I'm just going to try and bully people into the kingdom. And I'm going to church. and I'm going to tell people they're wrong. And I'm going to say all these things. And I was like so headstrong. And so many Christians who were obviously more mature than me were just patient with me. They didn't go, right, I need to take you aside and tell you you're wrong and, and tell you where you're doing wrong. But they just were patient with me. They paid a cost in their time and in really, in, in it, I suppose, they allowed me some space to, to let God do the work. Um, and when, you know, early in our Christian life, we came to Salford for university as well, Grace and Kevin, about 22 years ago as well. And in the first year of, of our, at my university, my wife's dad was killed in a car crash um, unexpectedly. And we were just, we just couldn't go to church. We couldn't even struggle to pray. You know, it was like, what, where are you, God? This is not what I thought Christian life was about. And what are we going to do? You know, neither of us wanted, I was kind of, after about a year, I was like, we need to get back to church. And Mara didn't really want to. And we didn't really have a community. We didn't have any way of meeting people. She didn't anyway. And uh, a pastor of a local church came and he just came and said, I'll just meet with you. I'll come and meet with you in your home. We had small kids. We couldn't really get out at nighttime. And he said, just come and meet with you. And he just shared the Bible, listened to us in our sort of anger and our, mis and our frustrations and prayed with us. He paid a cost for us in time and in care and in empathy. And that was instrumental in bringing us back to our faith again and to a community. Around a few years after that, we were living in this rough council estate. And one of our friends, we were looking to try and get out of there and... Uh, we thought we've just got no money, you know, Morag's at home all the time with the kids and I've got a, a minimum wage job in a bank. Um, we're never going to get out of here, you know. And a friend of mine just went, 
I think God's told me to give you a gift. I don't want, I don't want it back. I just want to give it to you. I open the, the envelope, £10,000 check. £10,000. I'm not doing that to say, no, 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 you've never had that. Uh, some of you have had other things that are just as generous, but we were blown away. In fact, to the point we just didn't feel we could, we could receive it. But in the end, we did. And uh, this guy paid not only a huge financial cost, but he, paid, he delayed his future so that we might have a future. He's thinking about Paul and but he delays his future. He'd saved up all his working life, in his early working life, so that he could have a deposit for a house to get out of living at home. And now he's got to live at home for years so that we can get out of a rough council estate. I mean, that is, that is koinonia, isn't it? I know it's not just about money, but it was, it was much more than that. And I could go on and on and on, story after story, of other people who've invested in me and paid a cost so that I might thrive. And I've seen it in our church as well. Just want to say, well done, everybody. That sounds, can sound very trite and patronizing. Well done, everybody. Because over the years, I've been here nearly 12 years now in April, and I've seen so much of this love in action. I've seen parents being given meals when they've just, just had a baby. I've seen people adopting children and fostering others and reaching out to the vulnerable. I've seen people uh, give advocacy and advice in difficult work and family situations. I've seen people, friendship and people support others during illness and bereavement. I've seen practical help and DIY in people's homes that you would never even see. I've seen countless hours in the vine uh, when it was a cafe and now in the community hub. I've seen countless hours on church rotors and behind the scenes, creating and building websites and designing posters and budgeting and looking after staff wages and cleaning the church and so much, so much. These are all examples of koinonia, of commitment to community, of love in action. So to come to an end, in these days of hyper-individualism, transactional relationships, and growing isolation, the gospel is brilliant news, everyone. It is the best news because it offers us a chance to become part of a global family made up of local fellowships who are marked at their best by intimate, self-sacrificial love, prayer, and commitment. It transforms the way you see yourself, but more than that, it transforms the way you see other people who are made in the image of God. The more you meditate on the love God has for you, the more you will love his people. So let's continue to do that, shall we? More and more as we share our lives together. We're going to invite Hannah and the band to come back. And uh, I'll pray for us as we respond with some sun worship. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this community of people, this family of believers. We thank you for one another, Lord. We thank you that we are a gift to one another, Lord. Thank you for each one of us has so many examples probably in our lives of where others have shared their lives with us and have cared for us and have paid a cost for us that we might thrive. And Lord, we know there is no greater gift and no greater example of that than Jesus, what you did for us on the cross, isolated in that lonely, broken place so that we might be welcomed into your family. 
Thank you, Lord, that no matter what happens in the rest of our lives, people might reject us, even our own families might reject us, but Lord, you welcome us as your sons and daughters. And Lord, we want to do that for one another. We want to welcome one another with the love that you've shown us. Lord, help us to meditate, to ruminate, to think about, to focus on your love for us, that it might change our hearts, Lord, open our hearts to others. We recognize in ourselves we can't do it alone. We recognize our own weaknesses. But we know, Lord, that as we focus on you, we know that you transform us and you change our hearts. Help us to do that, Lord. Come and meet with us again. Pour out your love into our hearts, Jesus, we pray. That we might reflect your love to others. In the name of Jesus, amen.